Have you been looking for a way to stay focused on your goals and grow your MSP? Accountability groups from Rocket MSP can help. We offer weekly accountability sessions that meet online with a group of your peers. Your success begins with accountability. Go to www.rocketmsp.io to join your accountability group today. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Plus, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's literally everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I better switch us. There we go. There we go. Hey, how's everybody doing? We are live. It is Wednesday the 3rd. Wednesday the 3rd already. Oh my gosh, of February. Uh, I'm told that the groundhog, what is it, didn't see the shadow yesterday. So we have six more weeks of winter, which uh, based on the calendar is already true because spring begins in uh, March. So I don't think it really matters if the groundhog saw its shadow. But today, uh, more importantly, I am joined by Vadim Vladimirsky, if I said the last name right, I hope. And uh, Vadim, thank you for joining me. Vadim is from Nerdio. And we've we've had Nerdio on in the past, and I was really impressed with, with what you guys do, man. Um, so so I, I think we should just get a few things out of the way. Uh Vadim, your your name sounds very Russian. Uh, it, it it actually is Ukrainian. Ukrainian. Okay, so uh, does that mean you dislike Russia even more? With no, that whole... uh, so, so when when I was there, I was born in the USSR when it was USSR, but I yeah. left there in the early nineties. So to say I I like or dislike it's it's kind of challenging because I've. I've been in the U.S. Uh, vast majority of my life uh, for 30 years or so. So um, I guess if you look at, at the people who live in Ukraine, I think there is a bit of, uh, at least some portion of the country has a bit of animosity towards uh, towards Russia. Uh, well, but, was the, but we used to be close neighbors when I when I lived there. Sure. And um, is it Crimea? Is that the is that the big hot spot right now with Ukraine and Russia? Is that still a thing? It's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. So I actually, uh, uh, did you bring it up now? I, I went to visit Ukraine two years ago, I think 20, mm-hmm. was it 2018, 2019? Anyway, a couple of years ago for the first time since I left in like 92 or something like that. So obviously a very different place. So I kind of learned about some of the dynamics there. So yeah, so Crimea was annexed by Russia at some point, you know, a few years ago. And like half of the country of Ukraine are 
fighting Russia and trying to get it back, and the other half are kind of supporting it. So it's it's a whole big political mess, like it is in many places in the world. So yeah, it's. Uh, but but I do that that question a lot. Uh, I get that question about my sort of my Russian sounding name and. Uh, uh, you know, there's Russia in the news, uh, you know, regarding the political situation, is, but also about all the hacking yeah. stuff that's happening. So, yeah, yeah that, that's up quite a bit. Yeah. So and, and that's why I figured, you know, let, let's just get it out of the way, because I, I know people are going to be asking, you know, like, why should I use Nerdio? Because Russia insert terrible thing Russia's done last week here. You know, like if it's if it's not. um I, I I feel like suspected political tinkering is is the best way I can say it because I I just don't know I don't it's, have it's proof. a safe way to say it I would say yeah, yeah right you know so so if if it's not that it's you know the suspected solar winds hack and and all of the other things right so I just I guess I just want to say like are you working for Russia are you like KGB are you a spy like. If 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 I tell you, I'd have to kill you. That's fair. That's fair. So we don't actually know is what I'm telling you guys. Uh, <laughs> so you you've been in uh you've been in America for for over thirty years. We've got a, a sleeper cell. He created a company. It's called it's called Nerdio. And for those of you that don't know what Nerdio is and why on earth we're talking with uh, Vadim. Vadim, why don't you can explain it better than me? Why don't you fill people in on, on how awesome Nerdio is for Azure users? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Nerdio's mission is to empower MSPs uh, to create profitable and successful practices in Microsoft Azure. Um, we actually started inside of an MSP that um, I founded in 2005 and, and recently sold. Uh, and in that MSP, we created a cloud practice. We were, you know, one of the first, if not the first, in the in the mid 2000s to open to offer desktop virtualization to SMBs. Um, really had a lot of success with that business, and created a lot of technology and, and knowledge and kind of expertise in in building pure cloud uh, MSP services in the SMB space. So when we started Nerdio, the mission is really take what we've learned, take the technology we created and, and build tools uh, for MSPs to be able to, to do something like that. Uh, and obviously Microsoft Azure was our platform of choice, given the fact that you know we as an MSP back then and, and all of our partners and customers today are, are really Microsoft centric. So people do ask, you know, why Azure, why not AWS, why not GCP? And, we can get into that discussion if you'd like, uh, but Azure has definitely been our platform of choice, and uh, that's what we do. We we empower MSPs to build successful cloud practices. That's amazing. All right, so that explains why Azure, and it kind of touches on what is Nerdio. But let's talk about what Nerdio is actually doing for for the MSPs. Um, you mean you don't want me to just talk marketing speak? This is like this is not just marketing discussion. You yeah, know? let's. let's <laughs> you want let's me to actually about, talk about products and technology? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's you, you know, the viewers I would like to think are smart people. They can handle it. Uh, <laughs> I, I have no no uh, no question that they are absolutely <laughs> love to do that. 
you know, I, I don't just, like to talk about marketing stuff. I like to talk about product, no, I, product guy. I get it. I, and, and just so uh, for those of you that are watching live, we can see the, the chat on YouTube. So feel free, chime in with questions, comments, um, whatever you want to know, uh, even the ridiculous people that want to heckle us. I, we will let, we will at least entertain their questions and comments a little bit. So, so please, uh, what is Nerdio actually going to do for the MSPs? That, that, that's a that's a question to me, not to the audience to ask questions. To you, right? to you, yes, gotcha. gotcha. Uh, so, what do we actually do for MSPs? So, what what we've created is an automation platform. One, a single pane of glass automation platform, right? Have you heard that one before? Uh, so, okay. so we created a, a product, um, actually I have a number of products, but let's start with the first called Nerdio for Azure. And Nerdio for Azure is a technology that allows MSPs to price, provision, manage, and optimize an Azure environment across their customer base. What does that mean specifically? So, you know, in order for you as an MSP, to start you know, selling Azure to your customer, the first thing you need to know is how much am I gonna charge them, which is based on how much it's gonna cost you, right? So, so we have a technology called Nerdio Cost Estimator uh, that's actually available uh, you know, freely on our website. And it allows you to kind of go through a wizard-based process and answer a few questions about your customer's environment, and it will architect an Azure environment for you. So it will tell you what kind of VMs you need. It will tell you what type of licenses you need. Uh, it will tell you how many things should be in the reserved instance, how many things you're gonna need to buy licenses for, all of the nitty gritty nuances that you really need to know in order to properly price out an Azure-based environment. Uh, and you know what we like to say is Microsoft created this great tool called the Azure Price Calculator, which is out there on their site. Uh, but in order to use it, you really need a PhD in, in Azure pricing, right? Because you really oh, need to know. That thing's ridiculous, man. It's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. It's powerful, but it's you know it's it's of limited use, uh, I think, to to those that that are not sort of the the, the expert of the expert in Azure, because you never know what you're missing, right? If you're pricing out an environment and you forget to factor in storage transactions or bandwidth consumption, right? All those things can really come to bite you, especially if you are providing a fixed price bid uh, to a customer in a proposal. So, so that's that's sort of the first component. So we create, uh, we, we walk them through a wizard, they answer questions, you know, how many users, how many desktops, you know, how many VPN tunnels, what type of backup retention you wanna have. And if we have time, I'm, I'm happy to show that to you as well. Uh, and ultimately, it, it breaks everything down, provides an architecture, and then rolls it up from a cost perspective into a per user per month cost. And, and we are strong advocates of packaging complex solutions like Azure-based IT into a predictable per user per month price to your end customers. So that, you know, first of all, you can make more margin if you do it that way. And then you're not being shopped against other MSPs selling, you know, an Office 365 license or a VM or things that are kind of commoditized. So we encourage our partners to bundle things and create standardized packages. And the pricing tool that we have enables that. So it, it tells you what the cost is gonna be. You can then add your margin on top of it and, and then provide the proposal to the customer. So, so that's part one. Yeah. Any questions on that? That makes sense? Uh, well, I, I do have a couple of questions. So. 
obviously, I, I think it's safe to say Azure really only makes sense when you have like a certain number of end users, right? Like, and and to clarify, so when I think Nerdio for Azure, I'm still thinking what you know, two or three years ago when we spoke, and um, you really were helping us to set up like full remote desktop VM type stuff in in Azure. So, um, are are you also helping us manage if if people just want to use uh, Azure AD? Yeah, yeah. So, so we, you know, we still have that use case, you know, remote desktops and things like that. Um, we, we certainly expanded the use cases of the product, so you can manage uh, IaaS only, right? So, if you don't want to do virtual desktops, you want to do, you know, servers and auto scaling and backup and network management and AD management. Uh, we we have uh, use cases in the product for specifically for that and, and versions of the product uh, that you can use. And you know, it's it's sort of a very common uh, what I will call a misconception is that Azure only makes sense at a certain scale. Um, and I think if you properly pull on all of the proper levers from a pricing perspective, so things like reserved instances and Azure hybrid usage benefit and auto scaling and all of the things that you need to know to make the Azure price be something you can actually make money on. It's it's very broadly applicable. Now, is there a case that you can come up with where it may not be appropriate? I'm sure, but overall, you know, in in the vast vast majority of situations, it's applicable to small environments and large environments as long as you're pulling on all the right levers when you know building it out and, and pricing it. So let's talk about um, let's talk about your average MSP. What, what I think an average MSP is is actually doing these days. So let's let's consider a 15 user prospect. Mm -hmm. And this prospect is they're pretty behind. Um, sorry, I'm I'm also taking notes because um, I, I'm I'm trying to do this thing where I'm timestamping the videos. So sorry if I if I seem like I'm no worries. I, I'm not like you know chatting with my wife or something. <laughs> I'm taking notes. Um, so sure. so let's talk about you know a 15 user prospect. They're probably behind on technology. You know they they probably have 15 desktops. Half of them are probably still running Windows Home. Um, they don't have a server. They're all just running like Dropbox. And let's be realistic. They're all sharing a single Dropbox account because they don't want to spend money on Dropbox for business. So when when you think about like what these these smaller companies are doing to kind of like circumvent and get around and, and save money and, and squeeze what, whatever they can out of a penny just to just to make their computers work, going from that type of environment to Hey, we need to get everyone on Office 365 Business Premium or, or Microsoft 365 Business Premium, whatever they call it now. You know, they'll <laughs> change its name again next week. Don't even get me started about Intune. Um, so, you know, we need to get everyone on that, and then you'll all have, um, you know, the OneDrive and instead of uh, sharing a Dropbox, and and then we'll get everyone on Azure AD. We'll upgrade everyone's uh, computer to be on uh, Windows 10 Pro, so that way we can join them to an Azure AD uh, domain, right? Because you can do that with Azure AD, right? So mm -hmm. um, so how 
how on earth, one, do we go about pitching that to the cheapskate business that knows they need to finally start making some changes, but they don't really understand how much this is going to cost them? And then two, how do we sell it? So let's let's start, or I'm sorry, how do we set it up? So how do we sell it and how do we set it up? Let's start with how do we sell it first? Sure. So, you know, so I think the example you brought, and, and maybe let's let's kind of bifurcate the discussion here. So in the example you brought, I would question, does the prospect need Azure at all? Is there a workload in that customer scenario that belongs in Azure? Based on the way, again, obviously it's hypothetical, but the way you describe this hypothetical prospect, and this is a very common scenario, is they're a SaaS-only company. They don't really need any infrastructure. They don't need any, you know, levels of security that you know Azure can provide them. They just need the Microsoft SaaS product, which is the M365 stack, whether it's Business Premium or some other product, uh, and that's it. You know, they 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 have probably other SaaS applications. They're going to be using OneDrive and SharePoint that's built into Office 365 to collaborate. So that may not even be a use case for an Azure deployment. Now, if you add something into the mix and you say, well, you know, they use QuickBooks desktop and they refuse to go to QuickBooks online and everyone is now working from home instead of working from an office and they're having trouble uh, sharing their accounting system, Okay, now we've opened up a situation where like they need something, right? They're not gonna get away with, with SaaS only. They're gonna need a QuickBooks server, wherever that server is, and Azure is definitely a good place to put it and be able to run it through like something like a WVD, like a Windows Virtual Desktop environment. So I think when you're talking about a SaaS only business that's using M365 with Azure AD, which are all SaaS services, there is no need for Azure. And in that case, I mean, the, the, the challenge of selling it to them uh, is the challenge of, of being an MSP and doing sales as an MSP. You know, you build up the value of, of the added security, supportability, you know, having, uh, you know, better access to the data, you know, whatever the benefits are of, of having a, a more properly architected and better supported system, you know, would apply. There's nothing magical related to Azure that would come into that, into that equation. Is that... Do you agree? Does that make sense? It, it, so it does. But a lot of times I hear MSPs saying, no, I, I just, I don't care. I just, you know, everyone gets Azure AD, you know, they'll get the single sign-on and it enhances the security of the desktops and, you know, bullet point, bullet point. Uh, I, I, so, so is, let me, let me ask you this. Are MSPs wrong for doing that? Because it sounds like a, Maybe they're overselling the customer, but then on the then on the same aspect, B, it it is smart for the MSP to um, simplify and uh, gosh, I can't even think of the right word. Um, they want to use the same thing for every customer, right? So if yeah. if the if the if the MSP says, well, no, I'm just going to put all of my clients on Azure AD because. You know, I want that single sign-on. I want because you know Azure AD isn't that going to provide a little bit better security on the endpoints themselves by Absolutely. having a domain? Yeah, because yeah, you, you don't have to make them a, a system administrator. Then you can just make them a user, and then 
there can be an Azure admin that the MSP can use to get access into that computer sure. and do things. Yeah, no, there, there's all kinds of stuff. So, so I, I think maybe, um, you know, maybe let me just clarify some some of the terminology, that is at least the way I'm using it. So Azure AD is not really part of Azure, right? Even though it has the name Azure AD mm. in the name. Azure AD is more of a SaaS service, right? It's, it's a software as a service based directory, which happens okay. to have Azure in it. But there is no Azure subscription necessarily sure. associated with Azure AD. So anybody who, who has an Office 365 or Microsoft 365, you know what they call a tenant, that is the instance of Azure AD. There is no Azure subscription, which is what you need in order to run Azure resources. And when I talk about Azure resources, I mean VMs, storage, VPN, networks, those IaaS components, infrastructure as a service components, are not really, you know, they, they, they sit inside of an Azure AD association through the subscription, but Azure AD in and of itself is absolutely critical, just like you said. Anybody who uses M365 will have it and will be using it in one way or another, but it's not part of Azure, so to speak. Okay. So then let me ask you this. Um, will Nerdio assist us with managing 365, Azure AD, those types of things, or does it only work on Azure products? It, it, it works primarily on the Azure workloads that are part and parcel and integrated into Azure AD. So if you have no Azure workloads, you shouldn't be using Nerdio for Azure. Um, okay. Even though if you were using it, you could manage your Azure AD with it, if that makes sense, right? Because th there's just so much integration in all of these things in the Microsoft uh, ecosystem that if you're doing, let's say, a Windows Virtual Desktop, that requires an Azure AD user account. So by the virtue of managing the Windows Virtual Desktop, Nerdio, Nerdio products manage Azure AD. But you wouldn't want to use Nerdio to just manage Azure AD because there is a nice UI in the admin center, Microsoft 365 admin center, to do just that. So, so just to clarify, the reason we wouldn't want to use that is not because Nerdio can't, but it's because uh, Nerdio is going to basically add unnecessary costs when there are other potentially better tools that we can use for management of the 365 environment. That, that's right. That's exactly right. And and I think that the best way maybe to uh, to articulate it is, you know, Nerdio can do lots of things, but it's built for specific use cases. And if you want to use it outside of those use cases, then, you know, you may be able to because it has the technology stack to do it, but it, it may not be adding the necessary value because you're not solving a big problem, right? So, for instance, sure. managing Azure AD is not a difficult thing to do. It's a SaaS service. There's really not much to it. You don't need a third-party portal to do that. You can do it in the native portal. On the other extreme, if you're doing a WVD deployment, right, Windows Virtual Desktop, and you want to do auto-scaling and image management and automation, and you want to be able to do performance monitoring, all kinds of things somebody running virtual desktops would need, doing it natively is, is super difficult and complex and expensive, which is one of the use cases Nervio solves for. So we have a WVD use case that MSPs can put their customers into Windows Virtual Desktop, and we bring everything related to building and operating such an environment into one place, automate it, simplify it, and, and then support it for our customers, for MSP customers. Hmm. Okay. Um, 
So for the people that are like, well, I don't really use Azure today. I'm not really doing any type of virtual desktop hosting or or virtual server hosting for my for my clients right now. It's scary. I don't mm-hmm. understand it. Um, what do you say to them? It, it, it is scary, right? I mean, it, they're they're rightfully scared, and I think there's there's really three elements to it. It's it's expensive from a you know staffing and knowledge and skilling perspective. It's it's different. It's just super different than managing on-premises environments, uh, and you need to learn it, and you need to either train your staff or hire staff that knows it, and people that are Azure experts and certified. They're in high demand. They're expensive to hire and retain. So there's definitely, um, you know, an, an element of, of that that's involved. Uh, I think it's complex, um, which makes it, you know, difficult to work with until you learn and become an expert. Uh, it's perceived to be more expensive than an on-premises alternative, which, as I mentioned earlier, is not usually and almost never the case if the proper levers are pulled. And then finally, it seems risky because it's consumption-based. And you're never really confident, what is it going to cost me? But your customer is not going to be willing to take on that risk. They're like, you're the MSP, you're the expert. I pay you the money. You give me a fixed price so I can budget for it. And then you are, as the MSP, taking on that consumption-based billing risk. So those three elements are the things we try uh, that we help MSPs with. You know, with the pricing tools, we help them get around the consumption-based pricing risk so they know exactly what the cost is going to be. With all of the automation, uh, we help simplify and eliminate the need for high levels of expertise in deploying and managing those environments. So we we try to translate the big world of Azure, which is hundreds and hundreds of services, to, okay, well, what's relevant to an MSP's use case? And if the use case is X, Y, and Z, then here's how you do it. And there's automation and technology that just sort of walks you through it, as opposed to having to understand things like, Kubernetes and machine learning and IoT and all of the things that most MSPs, at least that we work with, aren't in the business of doing, right? And mm-hmm. if you if you if you go and read up on Azure, if you type in Azure into Google, what you'll notice is it's mostly about those things that's that are cool now, right? The IoTs and, and AI and big data and all of those kinds of things. But but the servers and the desktops and and backup and networking, like that's not cool to talk about. So most of the world doesn't talk about those things, but that's what we focus on because that's what MSPs use to deliver services to their clients. So going back to your original question, what do you tell to an MSP who's not currently doing a virtual desktop uh, and is afraid to jump into Azure? And, and it's, it's looking at their customer base or looking at a particular customer and understanding you know, what could that customer's environment look like if I did not have all these disparate devices that I was running around managing? And how much is the cost of me as the service provider? How much am I charging the customer for that service? Can that be consolidated, centralized, optimized, put in one place so I can manage it remotely without having to you know, drive out and do it on premises? And then once you understand what that vision could be, we can show you how you get from where you are right now to where that vision is, you know, both from a business perspective, but also from a technology perspective. Hmm. So do you have, um, do you have like a demo environment that you're able to 
show yeah, us? Absolutely. There's, yeah. So sure. Go there's ahead. a little Move. share screen button down at the bottom, or at least I think you see that. Yep, I, I, I would be happy to show that to you, uh, and and maybe we'll start with Nerdio for Azure. You know, um, you asked me in the beginning, what does Nerdio do? And I said, you know, I'll talk about one of our products, which is Nerdio for Azure. We have, you know, many other things that we do, but I think we can start uh, with the Nerdio for Azure products. So let me go ahead and uh, log into a demo environment real quick. And I'll share my screen. All right, here we go. Share. All right, let me know if you can see my screen. I can. Perfect. And I even Perfect. added it, just it, oh, it just works. Oh, I love it. <laughs> so, so this is the Nerdio admin portal, which is sort of the UI mm -hmm. on top of Nerdio for Azure product. And again, we have other products that maybe we'll touch up on uh, a little bit later. But this is where an MSP would go uh, and create customer accounts, manage customer accounts, or maybe initially let's start out with creating an estimate and sort of uh, you know designing an environment for a customer. So let's go ahead and start under the billing section with the cost estimator. And under the cost estimator, you'll see the first thing it will ask you is what is your use case? You know, are you going to be deploying um, sort of IS only, uh, uh, things like uh, line of business applications, database servers, uh, that would be this use case, or are you gonna run a complete IT environment, including virtual desktops in Azure, which would be this use case. So let, let's select the ITAS or IT as a service use case. And as you see, when you change these, the selections below kind of uh, obviously adjust based on the, on the selected use case. So as we That's go down, cool. then, then it will ask you, okay, well, tell us about, you know, you've selected ITAS, which means it's servers and desktops and software. So this is the most complete situation. So let's start out with the desktop information. So first of all, you know how many users will you have in your environment? Let's say we're going to have 20 users in our environment, and you know 20 of them are going to use a virtual desktop. Then we're asked, okay, what technology stack do you want to use to deliver those desktops? Do you want to use the more traditional legacy at this point? I would say RDS or the new WVD, and that's you know really the default and recommended option. And if you don't know what the difference is, then we have a little overview that tells you kind of at a high level how you compare the two. And then if you really want to geek out and you want to get into details, we tell you a much more detailed description, what the pricing is. We have white papers that help you understand which one makes sense when. But in today's world, WVD is definitely where we're seeing 90%, if not 95% of all deployments. Can can you give me a 10,000 foot overview? What is the difference between the two? Sure. So RDS, which is Remote Desktop Services, is a um, technology that's been around for a long time, right? Started out as a yeah. server 20 years ago, et cetera. And it is a self-managed technology that runs um, various what they call infrastructure roles. So things like license manager, connection broker, RD gateway, the web portal, all those pieces need to be run and managed on VMs. 
Windows VMs, the roles of a Windows Server operating system. In WVD, Microsoft has taken all of those pieces and has put them up into a PaaS service that they manage and they host, and it's no charge, meaning it's, it's, a, it's part of the WVD license, which comes with any Windows subscription. So like M365 Business Premium includes an entitlement for WVD, which means all of those infrastructure roles are now part of WVD, and you don't have to worry about them at all. Only thing you as an MSP need to manage for your customer are the session host VMs. And session hosts are those machines that are providing the desktop session to the users. So that would be so one major it, difference. It sounds like WVD is, if not making things more cost effective, they're at least making things substantially easier because you don't have, you know, three different you know, RD servers that you have to manage all, all the, you know, the broker and all this other stuff because um, they just do it all for you. And it's all in the back end and it's all automated. All you have to do is pay for the VM, which again, right. they might charge a little bit of a premium for the, the Windows Virtual Desktop VM, but you you save in the in the massive headaches that you won't have. So that, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, not only do they not charge a premium, they actually charge less. I'll explain how. And today, up until I think March 31st, they're actually having a promotion that anyone who hasn't deployed a WBD yet, I think gets 30% off the VMs for 90 days. So if you okay. sign up before March 31st, they have a special promotion going on now. So, so they're actually making it cheaper, not only simpler and because they manage those roles, but the VMs themselves end up being cheaper. And the reason they end up being cheaper is because the operating system that you're running on those VMs, unlike with RDS, which is a Windows Server class operating system, is Windows 10. And there's a special version of Windows 10 that Microsoft made uh, back in 2019 called Windows 10 EVD or Enterprise Virtual Desktop, also known as Windows 10 Multi-Session which allows it to behave like a server class operating system by having multiple users logged in at the same time. And that version of the OS is exclusive to WVD, meaning you cannot use it on premises, you cannot use it outside of Azure WVD deployment. Now, the reason it makes the VM cheaper is, as I'm sure as you know, when you run a VM in Azure, you're paying for two things. You're paying for the compute, the base compute, right, the infrastructure to run that VM, and you're also renting a license from Microsoft for the operating system. So like if you look at the Linux machine relative to Windows machine, even if they have the same specs, Linux will be cheaper. And the reason for that is the differential in price between Windows and Linux is the rate you pay for renting the operating system. Windows 10 doesn't, so Windows 10 machine will cost as much as a Linux machine because the license for Windows 10 is part of your business premium subscription. It does not need to be rented through Azure. And that's like a 40% savings on a month-to-month -month basis. And for larger machines, it's even bigger than that. So it's not only you're not managing those RD services, but the VM itself is much cheaper for you. Okay. So so let's look at this here. I, I'm... I'm wanting to dive back into um, you said this is the pricing, the, the price quote builder. The cost estimator. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cost estimator. Thank you. Yeah. You want me um, to keep going through it? 
Do you have some yes, questions? please. Yeah. So, so let's say we're going to go with the WVD deployment. Then it's going to ask us, will you have any uh, dedicated personal desktop users, right? So there's two ways to do virtual desktops. You can give users a dedicated machine, which, which are called personal desktops. So each user will have a permanently assigned machine. You can give them admin rights to it. Uh, it's basically like them having their own VM. Obviously, that's you don't have to give admin rights, though, right? You don't have to. You don't have to. Okay. Uh, the other way to do it is what's called pooled users. Pooled users is when you, as the administrator, you maintain an image, and then the VMs that are based on that image are serving up desktop sessions to users, and there's multiple users coming into the same VM. Obviously, you're spreading that cost of the VM across multiple users. Okay, so that's a more cost-effective way to do it. So this is asking you, are you going to have any dedicated personal desktops? So let's say out of these 20, we're going to have five executives who need their own machine, and we're going to say five of these 20 are going to be personal. And then it's going to calculate that the remaining ones are going to be 15 are going to be pooled. You can also say, I want to use GPU, but I'm going to skip that for now because that will add another dimension here. Okay. Yep. So talk to me. I, I know you explained that there's a there's a difference between dedicated and pooled. Explain to me why somebody would need a dedicated VM versus just being in a pooled one. Sure, sure. So there's, it, it's uncommon, let's put it that way. It's not something we often see people do, but the use case for a personal VM uh, it, it comes from one of, or two things. One is isolation. Sometimes users just feel more comfortable knowing that nobody else is using the VM that they're using. Even though you have you know, session separation and different user accounts and different profiles, there is just an isolation uh, benefit that you get by having your own VM that no one else ever logs into. So that's number one. And then number two would be performance. When you get your own VM, you're guaranteed a certain amount of CPU and certain amount of RAM, and no one else can impact you. When you are in a pooled environment, then users can impact each other in some way. So if someone is running, you know, a full screen YouTube and that's using a lot of the CPU, that may make other users run slower on that same VM. So, okay, so besides the dedicated resources part, um, whether you're pooled or not, it's still creating like a user profile on on the VM that you're using. So you can log in and you'll have like your shortcuts and your bookmarks, whether you're pooled or dedicated. That's right, that's right. From a, from okay. a user experience perspective, they look exactly the same. Um, and that has to do with another component that, that was part of WVD, and that's called uh, profile uh, encapsulation using a technology Microsoft purchased in 2018 called FSLogix. So FSLogix um, was, was a kind of a cool concept, you know, it's similar to some other profile management technologies, but just much more advanced. And what that does is it takes what's called the user state, right? Everything that's unique to a user, documents, desktop, shortcuts, printer settings, colors, everything that's, that's user specific, which by definition lives in the user profile folder, right? So under C users, every user has their folder. So that, that's the user profile. 
And what FSLogix does is instead of saving that profile to the C drive, it captures it and puts it into a VHD file, right, a virtual hard disk file, stores it on a file server. So no matter which VM you log into, when you're logging in, it will mount that VHD under your C users folder. So the operating system and applications will think there is just a regular user profile here, but in reality, all of that IO is going over the network to a file server. So you can go from one machine to the next and your settings will look identical. Reminds me of uh, Citrix. Mm -hmm. So I feel like Citrix w worked much better than Terminal Server back in the you know 2003 to 2008 for sure. Um, and then maybe even a little after that. Um, is, is Citrix still around? Like, oh yeah. We don't need yes. Citrix anymore, right? Like <laughs> Microsoft solved all the problems. Well, that's you know that that's up to debate. I think a lot of people would disagree with uh, with that particular assessment. Uh, Citrix is is very big, especially in the enterprise. I mean, Citrix has uh, you know lots of functionality that uh, that enterprises need. In the small and mid-sized business market, we don't see Citrix a lot. And WVD with automation tools like Nerdier really replaces everything that Citrix would do in that scenario. Uh, but there are certainly use cases in the enterprise where Citrix uh, it certainly is used. It's it's you know probably the the big they have the biggest market share in desktop virtualization in the enterprise. All right, well, and that's a market we're playing in, playing in as well a little <laughs> bit. Um, all right, so we got through the desktop, right? So the, the only thing we provided so far are counts: what technology we want to use and how many of which user type. Then we get to tweak it a little bit. So this section here tells us, okay, well, how many users per CPU are you going to be able to squeeze in? And this is very important because that's going to determine the cost. So, and there's several selections here, power worker, professional worker, knowledge worker, task worker, or custom. And the numbers here mean how many users per CPU. So let's say a yeah. professional worker means we're going to be able to get three of these kinds of people onto each CPU core. Uh, and then if we were using GPU, this would be highlighted as well, but because we put nothing here, we can skip the GPU. Then we move into the server section, right? So, okay, so we, we covered desktops. Now we want to know what is your server environment going to look like? So you're going to need a domain controller that's going to run your Active Directory you're going to need a file server that's going to store your FSLogix profiles. And based on the numbers you specified here, it picked the recommendation of what you should have. So like if I increase this number to 200 or even bigger, you'll see these numbers are dynamic. They change based on the user count you've selected. So what is this telling me? This is telling me for a domain controller, I'll have a B series VM with two cores and eight gigs of RAM. And I'm going to have a standard SSD 128 gigabyte disk with no data disk because it's a domain controller. There's nothing to store. Then for the file server, it's going to be a D-series VM, two, two cores and eight gigs of RAM. I'm going to have a, an E-series standard SSD C drive and a premium SSD D drive. This is where the FSLogix profiles are all going to be stored. So instead of being on the C drive of the desktops, the profiles are going to be stored right here. And then let's delete the ADFS proxy. We're not going to use a proxy in this deployment. Why not? 
Um, it, it's it's just unnecessary for such a small environment. If it was a bigger environment, then you, you could choose to use it. And I just want to make the rest of the choices a little bit simpler. So I took it off, took it off the page. Okay. Okay, then we get into uh, the pooled auto-scaling discussion, right? So let's let, let's motivate that discussion by saying that if you think about a typical desktop user, how many hours are they using their desktop in a typical week, right? So let's say they're using it 40 or 50 hours in a given week. Now, how many hours are there in a week total? There are 168. So if you're using 40 hours out of those 168, that means 75% of the time, your compute capacity is not utilized. So what's really important about auto-scaling is try to match when the user needs to be on the system and when the system is actually available for them. And during the rest of the time, turn it off, disable it, delete it, make it so that it's not costing me money. Okay. So what this is saying... So, mm -hmm, so I'm not going to lie. I I might have zoned out a little bit there um, because I was looking at the words that are written and I'm just not getting it. So I see the collection will be maxed out 40 hours per week yeah. and at minimum size 100. So so basically if you type in 40, is it is it adjusting the minimum size number? Like so, if, so let yeah, let, let's right. look at this. So so let's kind of put the, the pieces together. And again, all of this is recommended, but you can override them with, with settings that you may know are better. So we are going to be using an E4S V3, which is four cores and 32 gig of RAM machine. We are, so, so again, it's four cores. We are saying that we're going to be able to put in three users per core. That means each one of our machines can accommodate up to 12 users, right? So just four times three. We told the system we need 15 users. What does that mean? That means that I'm going to need a maximum of two machines, right? Because one is kind of not enough. And two is, okay. is the closest number that's going to get me closest to 15. But I only need these two machines when I'm maxed out, when everybody's on the system at the same time. Outside of those hours, so unless I maxed out, I'm only going to have one machine, right? So I have a maximum of two, a minimum of one, and I can scale between one and two depending on how many people are using the system at this time. And that's where this number comes from. There's going to be a minimum of one machine and a maximum of two. And it's just simple arithmetic from the size of the VM, the density, and the number of users. Okay. Okay. But I'm but I'm down further. Yep. And so, then, that, then the next thing, sorry to interrupt you, but the next thing okay. is telling us, well, how much of the time are you going to be maxed out? And how much of the time are you going to not be maxed out? So how many hours per week are you going to need to be 15 users? And we're going to put in 40 hours, right? So 40 hours, typical office, they're going to all be working 40 hours a week, which means the remaining... 128 hours, right? 168 minus 40, the system is right. going to be at its minimum size. So what are we saying? And, We're saying, mm -hmm. and I guess where I'm at is uh, silly me. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to do math like, okay, there's 24 hours in a day, there's seven days in a week. And I'm trying to figure out, is there really 168 hours in a week? And then what I was also trying to figure out is if you changed that 
40 to say 50, would yeah. it have automatically changed the 128 to 118? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, so can you adjust the second number or sure. is that just there? I mean, they're connected, right? There's a total of 168 in every week. It doesn't, right? It's not like the number of days in a month. So if you look at the number of hours in a month, obviously that varies based on what type of month right. it is. Uh, the, the reason we chose the week is because it's it's constant. No, no, I, I get it. I, I just, for some reason, I was looking at this and I was like, okay, it looks like you can change both. But so so I, I didn't realize that they were connected. And that's why I'm sitting here like, all right, I'm, I'm just not getting it. Now, now somebody <laughs> asked a question and yeah. we haven't actually talked about this yet. So I, I do want to I would I do want to talk about this a little bit. Let's let's kind of go backwards a bit. GPU yeah. desktops. Sure. This guy. So so um with GPU desktops, uh Derek asks a question. His question is um is GPU necessary if you want to do like a video conference, whether it's Teams or Zoom or something like that? Um, or is it is it more if you're trying to do like graphic design and rendering? That, that's an excellent question. Um, and, and uh, you know, I, I can give a very short answer and then I, 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 can, uh, I can describe it in more detail. So GPU is not necessary for Teams and Zoom as of a few months ago. Now, you know, if, okay. again, the question is great because Teams and Zoom or anything graphic can benefit from a GPU. Um, and if you don't have a GPU, then all of that processing gets loaded up to the CPU. So the CPU will compensate, but the CPU isn't as good at doing that processing as the GPU. Now, the reason I'm saying it's no longer necessary, although you can still benefit from it to some degree, is because Microsoft introduced something called Teams uh, audio uh, video optimizations and what that does is it offloads all of the video encoding and decoding to the local device instead of doing it within the virtual machine so it basically creates like a virtual channel to your local machine and all of the communication is actually happening peer-to-peer -peer, even though you're in your virtual session seeing the video so what that does is it reduces all of that CPU or GPU load and moves it to the local device. So that's why I'm saying it's not necessary for that specific use case. Zoom about a month ago did the same thing. Zoom now has a WVD plugin that offloads Zoom processing as well. Very cool. Now you can All still right, so benefit from a GPU. So let me let me ask kind of a follow-up question with the GPU thing, and then I've got another question not related to the Zoom thing. Um, so with Teams and Zoom, with both of them having basically created a WVD integration, mm -hmm. which allows us to use the local, when you say local, you mean like my desktop that's here that's is right. doing it. That's so right. like are people still selling like – dumb terminals like you know uh, uh weiss barely has anything in it because it's it's just all it does is connect to a remote computer absolutely yeah so so i think you're referring to like thin clients yes um, 
Yeah, and, and there's there's two flavors. You know, WVD is new. It, it went it, it mm-hmm. went GA just a little bit over a year ago. So so there is um, a, an ecosystem of thin clients. There is Windows based thin clients that are based in Windows IoT, which is the embedded Windows. And then there is Linux based thin clients and iGel. One of our partners is actually pretty. Uh, you know, kind of the front runner on that. They have, you know, a lot of integrations and a lot of capabilities. So, so yes, thin clients are definitely still a thing, uh, certainly in the enterprise, but also in, in SMB. If you want to eliminate any local device footprint and give everyone the ability to do everything virtually in, in a WVD session, there are thin clients, many different ones to do that. Okay. Um, so, sort of similar to the GPU thing, sort of. So Mm -hmm. let's say I've got a client, I I do have a client. They are, um, they're an interior design firm. They do, uh, they do ridiculous, like realistic looking 3D rendering of uh, internal, I'm I'm sorry, of of interiors. So so with that, 3ds max corona renderer corona is cpu only rendering and the more cores the faster it renders so i just moved them from a four core to an 18 core cpu and it took them from uh three days to six hours for rendering one of their their projects so would would something like that even be feasible in Azure, or should they just stay local? Well, well, now imagine if you took them from 18 cores to 64 cores, how much faster would it be? Oh, yeah, and I tried to sell them the uh, the AMD Threadripper. I, I tried to get them a, a boatload of cores. They just yeah. couldn't afford but, but, the but, extra $4,000. And that's the issue. You buy that that machine, you buy that CPU, you own it, you've paid for it. It's yours, it's there. In Azure, right, let's say it takes six hours. I'm just going to throw a number. Let's say it costs a dollar an hour to run an 18 core machine. I don't know if it does, just, just a free easy math. It costs a dollar an hour to run a 18 core machine. So it's going to cost you six hours roughly to render this particular piece of data. Now, in Azure, if you quadruple your cores, let's say 16 cores, just to make the numbers easier. Now you go to 64, right? So from 16 to 64, that's a 4X increase. The price is going to increase linearly. So you're going to go from dollar per hour to $4 per hour. Now your time to render, supposedly, assuming it's linearly kind of related, you're going to go from six hours to an hour and a half, because now you have four times as many cores. So now it's going to cost you exactly the same amount of money, because you're only going to be rendering for an hour and a half at $4 per hour at $6, or rendering for six hours at $1 per hour, that's also $6. But now you can give them as many cores as Azure will support, and it has crazy VM sizes, that you can give them lots and lots of cores, it will get the job done faster, and then the machine just shuts down because it's no longer needed, and you're no longer paying for it. Okay, so I wanna come back to this after we get through this price calculator, because I think that would be a very interesting use case for us to discuss, mm-hmm. because I want to I want to talk further about the spinning up, shutting down, all, all that type of stuff. Sure, sure. 
No problem. And, and I'm seeing some questions coming up from, uh, from Derek, um, or at least, yeah, so, so your, your question on, uh, on Windows 10 IoT, it, it, should, um, it, it should work with the, the audio media, the audio video redirection for Teams uh, should work on that um, as, as a local PC. But will it work as well as if the end user was using a, a you know, just a Dell cheapo tiny desktop? Will it work as well? Meaning, will the virtual desktop experience be comparable to a physical desktop experience? Is that right? Will the will the Teams or Zoom WVD integration feel just as smooth and not be jittery and stuttery and buffer yep. and all that? It, it can I, and it should, but there's okay. other variables in place. Right now you have latency sure. that you need to make, you have a good internet connection is, but the, the short answer is yes. It should it should look completely the same to the user. So so basically if if we're if we're talking about a Dell Weiss 5070 uh, thin thin terminal running Windows 10 IoT versus a, a Dell Optiplex, they're both sitting next to each other in the same office. And you know, same internet connection, and they both connect to Teams over WVD. The end user is going to have the same type of experience because that that Weiss fifty seventy is capable of doing the localized AV. That's I right. guess is what that's what Derek. I think that's what he's trying to confirm. That's right, and and that's if, if, and the way it's going to work is the Dell and the and you know the, the Weiss and the Dell machine are going to talk to each other just like they would if you were not using a virtual desktop, but they will display the picture in the virtual desktop. All of the heavy lifting will be done by the local CPU. So if you open up Task Manager on the on the WISE terminal and you look at it when you start a Teams call, you will see it spike up. And if you look at it in the virtual session, it will not spike up as opposed and I to I think that's what scares us. I think that's what scares us, Vadim, is because you know we think of a 5070 and you're like, oh man, that thing, that, that thing's going to start smoking if, if we try and do audio and video on it. <laughs> I mean, it, it depends how good your camera is and, and how much uh, how big the screen is and stuff. No, but for, for Teams, Teams is pretty efficient in my experience. So I think it's okay. fine. I'm not personally familiar with that model, so I, I don't know how powerful or not it is. But in theory, if it's a Windows-based machine, uh, it, it should be able to handle that redirection, no problem. So I think the the best approach should be it should work, but as with everything that you as an MSP are doing, you should test it locally before you make promises and just start selling it to clients and then implement something and go, oh, F, uh, I just messed up. <laughs> of course, test, testing goes without saying, especially with with these cutting edge technologies, you know, this is all, yeah. all, all complex stuff. So, all right, so we got we got the server section, we have our auto scaling section. Now, again, I, I showed you what the system came up with on its own based on the pr uh, parameters we provided. We wanna overwrite something if we say, well, look, I don't wanna use an E-series VM. I wanna use, I don't know, a, uh, a D-series or, or something else or, or a, uh, NV series, there's different types of VMs. And if you know better, if you think, okay, well, I don't want to use this E4, I'm going to use an E8, right? So E8 will will adjust automatically for your, you know, uh, uh, the cost will adjust and everything else will adjust. So let's keep it on the That's default. pretty cool. 
Yeah. So let's keep it default and let's keep going down. All right, now let's go get into licensing. Okay, licensing um, is you know an interesting area, and and we let you uh, really come up with very precise licensing estimates. So the first thing is, okay, do you uh, you're going to need Microsoft 365. Why? Because you selected Windows Virtual Desktop. That license comes as part of Microsoft 365. Then the next question is, are you going to be purchasing it or does the customer already own it? Meaning, do you want to include the Office 365 license as part of this analysis? And we're going to say yes, because that's we're providing a complete solution. How many? Well, we're going to need 20. Why do we need 20? Because we have 20 users using desktops and it also recommends to you the type of license you need you need windows microsoft 365 business premium but it also lists all the other ones that are supported now now you're not selling us the licensing you're just helping us include the licensing as as part of the cost calculator so we can create the most accurate costing possible so we still need to go to pax8 or synex or whoever our preferred vendor is, and pick up our Microsoft licensing. That's right. That's exactly right. And the the prices that you're including, like like for 365 Business Premium, are you including the, you know, whatever, $20 use, uh, end user cost price, or are you giving it to us at the 18-ish percent off? Hold that question. The answer okay. is yes. <laughs> so is yes, but hold that question. Okay. All right. So, so the other things you can do here is maybe okay. I have Microsoft 365 Business Premium to cover my desktop, but I also maybe have a bunch of other users within this organization. Maybe I have 80 other users who just need, you know, maybe Office E3, or maybe they need SQL, and there's different licensing models, different cores versus you know, different SQL versions, Windows 10. So all the different combinations of things that you can get uh, can be put now, in why here, but we have, made the recommendation. Now, why don't you have Office uh, just like Outlook uh, Exchange only, whatever they call it, the 4 or $5 one, Business Basic. Why don't you have that in there for our other licensing so that way we can also kind of include that? So, you know, the, 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 the catalog of that right, changes all the time, and it, it's not so much related to the virtual desktop deployment that we've chosen. So what do you need for a virtual desktop? You need the license for Windows entitlement. You need Office with shared computer activation. And those things come with the products that are listed here, right? So we well, list the products Microsoft... that will entitle you. Didn't didn't Microsoft like rebrand everything? Doesn't Microsoft 365 Business Premium include the Office 365 licensing? It does, which is why it's not selected, right? It's not selected. So, so what when would you use this? I think I understand what you're asking. Here's another way you can do it. You can say, I want Office 365 E3, but then I also need to license Windows, and I'm gonna license Windows with an E3 as well. This is another way to do licensing as an alternative to just doing it this way. But why on earth would I do it that way instead of just getting the Microsoft 365 bundle? Here's why. So let's imagine you, you sign up a customer who owns 20 licenses 
of Office 365 E3, yes? Now, okay. what are you missing? You're not missing Office. They have Office that can be used in WVD. This version of Office is all good. And if you buy them business premium, you're going to be paying for things you're not using. So what are your other options? You can just use this option. Gotcha. You can just okay. Windows, license Windows separately. Well, and, and so here's here's kind of where I'm at. Um, if I'm if I'm looking at this as a as a cost estimator, like gosh darn it, it sure would be great if I could just estimate all of my Microsoft licensing within here, um, or or if you could honestly give us the ability to add some custom items or or something like that. You know what I mean? Sure. Like, yep. No, that that's good feedback. Um, again, we're. We're trying to make this as a complete of a customator as possible within a use case that you've selected, because otherwise yeah. we're going to turn into an Azure calculator, right? And, and then it benefits nobody. The, the goal is to curate the lists to things that are relevant based on what you've selected up here. Yeah, and I and I guess my my thought of relevant is, um, you know, I've I've got a client where they've got a, a bunch of of people that don't actually need desktops because maybe they're just uh, warehouse people and all they want to do is check their email and they can do that on their phone. And so they don't need E3. They don't even need office. They just need a basic email only. Right. And, and obviously I know, you know, we're, we're not, we're not trying to replace quote works or, or, ConnectWise Cell or, or whatever, right? Like I know you're not trying to replace those tools. So I think it would be ridiculous for us to expect you to, well, I want to include Weiss Wind Terminals and, and you know whatever else, right? So um, at some point I, I get that the answer needs to be, well, no, we're just not going to do that. So um, maybe that's why you drew the line at, at we but don't need we, to do the exchange only stuff and, and that's we, fine. We always we always try to optimize between simplicity and flexibility. You know, the, the more right. flexible, the less simple, the more simple, the less flexible. So um, you know, could we maintain a catalog of, of other Microsoft products? Sure, but how big Nobody of a can. problem? Not is even it Microsoft, Vadim. <laughs> we can. We do have pricing API, we have access to all of it programmatically, so no problem there. But but you know, you said somebody needs the kiosk license for exchange online great you know can we include it yes will it be a more complete picture for that particular case yes but is that really a big problem to solve relative to the other things you know i, I would respectfully say you know it's a fixed price you need a hundred of those they're a dollar fifty a piece you know you know what your cost is so okay. but but it's, right, it's good feedback right. <laughs> it's good feedback i appreciate <laughs> it all right so let's keep moving down the, the, the page here. And then we have something called other features. Now, this is really important because this is where most people, you know, trip up if they use the Azure price uh, calculator, because these are some of the things you don't think about. So first thing is, you know, I keep talking about these pricing levers. So there is this thing called Azure hybrid benefit, and there's links and explanations of what it is. But in, in short, it's a way to license the operating system without renting it from Azure, okay? So you basically rent from Azure without paying for the OS at Linux rate, so to speak, and then you buy the OS separately through another program. So 
that strongly recommend it. And, and take a look at this. So let's say right now the cost of Azure is estimated to be 590. And if we change to use a CSP subscription of three years for Azure benefit, uh, Azure hybrid benefit, you'll see that that went down by whatever that was, $70 or so. And now at the same time, we have another cost that was added, which is not really a monthly cost anymore, that's an upfront cost to license that um, for three years. So it, it does that type of analysis for you to help you understand when does it make sense? When does it not make sense? See that? It basically and, in real time. And at a few dollars that. a user, um, all right, so 20 times three is 60, and that's $60 a month. I mean, 10 months, you're already, you know, at, at uh, your return on your investment, it looks like. That's right. That's right. Now, if we look at, it looks like going with a one-year commitment is just as good as going with a two-year commitment and you are paying less. So if you go with a one-year commitment, it still drops your price by those $3 per user, but now your cost upfront for that license is $291 rather than $582, right? So obviously and, this is your option. And realistically, what what's really happening is I don't believe you can, not that I'm aware of, I don't believe you can do a CSP subscription of a one or three year thing. You're you just, can. you're just, oh, you can't. Yeah, that, that's the, the units they come in. You can do a CSP subscription to Windows Server Operating System at one or three year durations. Oh, see, I thought those were monthly. No, no, they're, they're commitments up front. And then, and then one second, mm -hmm. one thing I forgot to show you is once you select your, uh, once you select your subscription, it gives you these check boxes where you can say apply or not apply the hybrid usage. And you'll see that it checked it yeah. for one server and it did not check it for another server. Why? Well, let's get to the nitty gritty, but ultimately we figured out it's not worth it because watch this, if you check this, it's going to oh. decrease your monthly by a little bit, but it's going to increase your upfront by a lot. Yeah. So, so we told you, okay, it doesn't make sense to do it on this particular VM. Uh, Derek said you can do RI via CSP. I don't so know. RI is RI. next. Yep, I'll explain okay. it. So the next thing is called RI or reserved instances. Reserved instances is a way to commit to capacity from Microsoft and get a huge discount. So by default, we are recommending that for the things you can commit to three years. Now watch what the difference is if you don't commit and you just use pay-as-you-go prices. So look at this, it's 522. Let's change this to a no. You're gonna to go to 885, right? So wow. it's it's 200, was it $350 a month that you're gonna be paying extra by not using this lever. So let me ask you this. I mean, you are basically signing a three-year contract with Microsoft doing that, right? On, on these two items, you are making a commitment, correct. Um, you so can cancel my it. User... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You can cancel it. You can get out of the commitment. And we even tell you, oh, okay, let me jump to that. Let, let's click on view details. I'm going to skip everything mm -hmm. else. And here it says, okay, if you're considering paying our eyes up front, 
this is your upfront, this is monthly. If you cancel after a year, you're going to have this penalty. If you cancel uh, after two years, you're going to have that penalty. And you just run a quick number and say, okay, well, you know, am I willing to risk $341 to get a $350 a month discount? I think it's kind of a yeah, I'd say that's one thing. Yes. I'd say because it honestly almost looks like they're they're basically saying you have to give us a month worth of discount for each year you cancel early. Yeah, about that. Yeah, that that that's probably a, a good a good rule of thumb. Um, the, the reason they're doing this, right? It's not so much that they need your commitment to use the capacity. I'm sure it's part of it, but you know, if you think about the way Microsoft. Uh, built out Azure, unlike, let's say, AWS. So they have a huge number of regions. I think it's up to 60 regions now or something like that mm-hmm. all over the world. Each region is multiple data centers, and obviously each data center is, is, is huge, right? So they built this capacity out. It's billions and billions of dollars each probably. And now they need to figure out where to add capacity. And in order to know where to add capacity, they need to have some market signaling to tell them, well, in three years from now or in two years from now, where do I need that capacity? So reserved instances is a very valuable signal to Microsoft from their customer base who are saying, I'm going to need this much capacity in a particular region. One of the things about RIs is you have to commit to a region and I'm going to need it for that long. And that tells Microsoft, great, I now know where to buy capacity for the next X number of years. All right. Makes sense? All right. Let's let's maybe speed up through this. I hope I'm not you know boring people with, with the details here. But let's say you want to do a backup, you can check the backup. If you want to do DR, VPN, uh, you know, other other options here. And then we get into some cost assumptions. Again, we are making some recommendations based on what we know. We're also going to recommend the size of the VM for your personal desktop user. So let's say we're going to go with a um, uh, with a D2 SV3. And then this gets back to your earlier question, is this based on my discount? So you said on Azure, let's say you're getting 9%. On software, you may be getting 18%. And RIs, reserved instances, you may be getting 1%. You then choose your region, let's say South Central, you choose your currency for our international partners. And then you click on this view details of view costs button, and it gives you the entire thing architected and broken down. So at the very top, what you really care about is what is this gonna cost me per user per month and how much is it gonna be upfront, right? So this is my software uh, commitment in Windows licensing. This is my per user cost that includes all of these components. There is a Azure piece, there is a Microsoft 365 piece, there is a Nerdier piece, there is the total monthly, and then there is a certain amount up front. These are all of our assumptions, and this is our architecture. So here is we're going to have one domain controller that's going to be in a three-year reservation. We're going to have a file server and a three-year reservation with an Azure Hybrid Benefit CSP subscription. We're going to have five personal desktops that are going to be in three-year reservation, and we're going to have two host pool desktops that are going to be one is going to be reserved and one is going to be pay-as-you-go. And it's figured out that that is the most optimal way based on the sizing and schedule that you've specified. And if you want to get into the nitty gritty of this 677, you can see how much is storage compute, how much is backup, how much are desktops, how much is server storage, et cetera. All of this 
is broken down, but ultimately what you care about is this number. Now you can take this number and you can say, I'm going to go to my customer and I'm going to tell them I'm going to charge them $125 per user per month. I'm going to include my RMM, my AV, my managed services, help desk, all baked into that one price. And I'm going to have a $63 license and Azure consumption cost built into it. All right. I'm impressed. Um, okay, so is there anything else to talk about with the cost estimator? I think we've covered it unless you have some questions. I mean, there's there's lots of other things you can do. You can save estimates and you can do all kinds of other stuff. But but this this gives you the idea of the flexibility and the simplicity, right? Again, we try to balance the two. Uh, anybody can do it. A sales team member who is not an Azure architect can fill this out. They don't need to know, you know, how Azure storage consumption works. This will figure it out for them. And you can have a, a, a proposal out to the customer uh, with, with just five, 10 minutes worth of work. So in order for us to be able to use the cost estimator, we need to be a Nerdio partner. Uh, it's actually available. It's actually available to uh, those who are not partners yet. So you can play around and model things out um, uh, through the cost estimator. So you don't need to be a partner. Fair but enough. If you, if do, you we, a partner, do we need to be able to log in to do it? Or is it just right uh, on the website? It's it, it's it's on the website, and you'll be able to um, fill it out, and then to get the results, we will ask for your email address. Hey, I think that's fair, man. So, so let's fair. be honest. You know, you you've got a lead magnet to, uh, you know, lead generation magnet to to get the results, but you're going to make it super easy for um, an MSP that maybe just needs some help figuring this stuff out you know, to, to be able to pop in some information and get that price. Um, and then once we're ready and, and we say, you know what, let's do this, uh, we we then become a partner with Nerdio and your tool, Nerdio for Azure, is going to like provision all of this for us. That's right. That's right. So, uh, and, and just to, you know, in order to become the partner, really, you don't, you don't need to become the partner first. You can just go on our website and sign up for a free trial of Nerdy of Azure. It will get you a login into the portal where you don't need to submit your information um, and, and use these tools. And you can provision any test accounts you want. Uh, it's free for 30 days. And if you do become a partner, you actually get an internal use license for your own organization that's free for life. So uh, once you once you decide that, to become a partner, that comes free with with the partnership. And I think back in the day, that was something like you would get like ten users or whatever That's you right. want to call it. Yep. Okay. Um, so so talk to me. Let's let's talk about uh, what it takes to become a partner. Do you have any minimums? We have no minimums. No. So we, you you caught you charge usage usage based. Wow, I can't talk just like um, Azure does. And it's, you know, it's all baked into to what we see here in the cost estimators. So it's not going to be a surprise or, or anything like that. Like we see what is it going to cost us to, to have Nerdio do all of this for us. Now, Nerdio is doing more than just giving us a price est uh, cost estimator and provisioning stuff. Nerdio is also, I, I think the best way to describe it 
would be um, like uh, using APIs and PowerShell so that way it, it can do all of the things that we wish we knew how to do using APIs and PowerShell because you can't do it through the UI or not very easily or whatever. Like you guys know how it is. Like remember a few years ago with Office 365, you couldn't even tell uh, it to, to never change the password unless you went into PowerShell and loaded up the Azure uh, PowerShell settings and then logged in, like that whole thing. So Azure, uh, Nerdio is basically kind of doing that for us with a really great interface. It's it's doing everything in the back end, whether it's API or PowerShell, I really don't care. It's magic, okay? It, it, you know, you click some buttons and it just happens. That, that's right. And that's really this the step two or the second component um, of, of the value that Nerdio for Azure provides, right? So first is helping you price and understand the, the financial model then it's the provisioning, right? It's the, the, the creation of the environment. And the way that works, super simple, as you said, you click on add NFA account. It will then ask you, do you want the ITAS deployment or the, uh, the ITAS or the IAS deployment? Like we looked at mm -hmm. on the price estimator. It will ask you which technology you want to use for desktops, let's say WVD. Once you click next, you need to click connect and that will ask you for the Azure credentials. It will then ask you to select a subscription. You can give it a resource group name. It will validate that you have sufficient quota in terms of CPU cores in your environment to provision this, this uh, base environment. You'll select the region where you want this to be provisioned, and then you'll select if you want to use this Azure hybrid benefit that we've been talking about. You then give it a name. You select a name of a domain that you want to use and you click go. And that goes in the background, submits a job and starts going step by step by step, building, building things out for you to where you'll have a functional environment in two to four hours. So you said um, you need to connect. So what what are we connecting to? Aren't, aren't you setting it up for us? We, we are, but in order for us to set it up, you need to log in into your customer's Azure subscription. So what if my customer does not yet have one because I'm selling it to them for the first time? Then you need to go to Pax8 or whoever your CSP provider is, need to buy it from them, get the credentials, and these are going to be the credentials you type it in here. It's going to be one of those, you know, user at something something dot on Microsoft.com type of accounts. And our, uh, so you said it's going to be connecting to their Azure subscription. Really, what what needs to happen is we need to sell them, you know, the Microsoft 365, or if they already own it, we're logging in with their Microsoft 365. That's right. And then, um, how? So so let's say they already own it. Um, well, no, and and now Microsoft 365, right? That's what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, we'll just make it easy. They already own Microsoft 365. Okay. Um, so we're gonna click connect. We're gonna we're gonna sign in. I assume it's gonna uh, need to be the administrator mm -hmm. of the Office 365. So who's paying for the Azure stuff that you're setting up? So good question. So once you connect, it's going to give you a drop down of Azure subscriptions if there are any. 
And if a customer has never expressed interest in Azure and hasn't gone into, uh, or, or you as the MSP didn't go to the provider to add an Azure subscription, this list will be empty. So what you need to do before you do this process is tell your CSP provider that you need an Azure subscription for this customer. They will add it to that customer's Azure AD tenant. And then once you connect, that subscription will show up in this dropdown. So your CSP provider can sell Azure to you. So you're not buying it directly from Microsoft and paying retail. Correct. You always want to go through your CSP provider. There you go. And again, we're not paying you for Azure or for Microsoft 365. You're not a CSP or, or a reseller of Microsoft products in any way, shape, or form. You are just, uh, I don't even know what to call you. Obviously, you're a channel we're vendor. An or, or orchestration tool, right? Yeah. We orchestrate everything and, and turn the dials inside of Azure and Office 365, but we don't sell it. That's why in, before you can use us, you need to obtain those credentials and get that subscription. Right. And then, and then so... You know, here's how we basically provision. And like you said, we, we need to select the existing subscription. So if a subscription doesn't exist, we need to make it exist using our CSP provider. We can't move forward with Nerdio until the Azure subscription is in their account. That's right. And we need to we need to tell the CSP, here's here's the subscription or subscriptions that we need based on the servers we need that we picked out in the cost estimator? No, the subscription in Azure is just a, a billing concept. It's basically a customer saying, or the MSP saying, I want to have the ability to create things in Azure and I am committing that I will pay for them after I use them. So, so, so we don't even have to tell them no. Oh, I need an, an E7-124012, whatever. I don't know. They, they have weird names, right? So uh, we don't need to tell them any of that. We just tell them, hey, I need to start provisioning Azure stuff for my client. They they ask you some information where you got to log in and uh, click some buttons and some links and whatnot to get them the the Azure or the the 365 tenant information, you give that to them, they'll add the ability for you to do this stuff. You And even if the client already has Azure stuff in there, you still probably wanna do this, that way it's going through um, your ability to bill. That's right. And then, and then you don't have to worry about telling the client, oh, well, I know I told you it was 7,000 a month, but it's really only 600 and the extras just went for, you don't have to deal with any of that when, when you bill them, they won't see what the pricing was because all the pricing is going through the CSP. Exactly right. Okay. So definitely make sure you have your CSP provider uh, put the ability for you to do Azure and whatever else on their tenant. So that way, even if they do want to continue getting their own I think you can have them give it, give you the ability to start selling them 365 licensing too, without sure. making them get it from you. Because you can have multiple CSPs and still be able to purchase things direct. That's right. Yeah. I mean, with, with 365, you can associate that tenant with your CSP account through your CSP provider. 
and then you can sell them additional licenses while they continue paying for whatever they were paying directly, or you can take over their existing licenses and have them start paying from you. So yeah, there's a lot of flexibility on how to structure that financial transactional relationship with the customer. CSP is, okay. is really a flexible you know, channel model with Microsoft. Okay. So what, let's take a look at, do you have like an existing account we can yeah. plug in? Yeah, so, so again, so that's step two, right? So, so price out and provision, those are upfront things. You know, you do them once mm -hmm. per customer and you're, you're kind of done, right? Until you have the next customer, you're, you're set. Once it's provisioned, that's when the management and the optimization comes in. And that's where really most of the functionality that you can see in the UI comes into play. So you can see our, I'm logged in as an MSP. I have three accounts under management. I have more heart, win heart, and good heart. You can see this one is an RDS deployment. It has five users. This one is a WBD deployment with eight. This one is a WD deployment with 172. And you can just click. It sounds on expensive. <laughs> it could be, or not necessarily, but you can click on login. And once you click on login, you'll see my context has now changed from being the MSP who can see multiple customers to being basically the IT administrator of that environment. And you know, we can spend a long time here and looking at what's there, but just just to go through the menus. You know, you have your home screen that gives you a bunch of shortcuts and usage information and recent activity and things like that. You can manage users, you can manage groups, mailboxes, server VMs, firewall, VPN, and other regions. You can manage backup and DR. You can onboard with all kinds of tools. You can manage security. You can manage auto scaling, all kinds of stuff, right? So this is your one single pane of glass portal within a single customer, right? So I've, I've entered a customer's account and now I'm managing everything within this customer's account. Wow, okay. So you said auto scaling. So that makes me kind of want to talk a little further about our, our uh, 3DS Max use case scenario. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about um, CPU-based rendering. So let's say uh, Alexander AV, your, your made-up person, I assume, needs to be able to open up 3DS Max and render things using Corona Renderer. And again, that's a CPU-based thing. So we want to be able to, to render one of these files down in 30 minutes instead of three days. So mm -hmm. maybe we need 128 cores to be able to do that. Okay. Um, is, is Nerdio able to facilitate, I need 128 cores to be able to render this file, but I only need it for the half hour to an hour that it's going to happen. So the short answer is yes, and there's multiple ways to do that. So let, let's let's uh, come up with a scenario. Is is this user going to be responsible enough to shut their server down after they're done with it or not? This, this user No, I don't uh, trust them whatsoever. Okay. In that case, what you want to do is you want to do it uh, either based on usage or, or more likely on a schedule. You want to forcefully take things down 
after a certain hour. Let's say after their eight hour day of using the system, you want to shut it down, right? Or however many hours you want to give them. So, so, so let's let's pause for a second. So, are they are are we auto scaling one of their existing servers from let's call it eight cores to one hundred and twenty eight cores and then back down based on usage, or are we making a dedicated box for them to log into that shuts down after a couple hours if if it's idle or whatever? It it could be it could be either. I think the easiest thing would be to add a new server, not even a new desktop, but add a new server. Select you know whatever operating system it supports. Select a huge VM. Let's see here is a 128 core, 3.8 terabyte VM, gig of RAM. Uh, choose That's where you want it to be. Ridiculous. That's pretty I big, right? It. Very expensive, as you can imagine. Click OK. That will create that server. And then you can set up auto scaling on that server and say, hey, you know, Alex or whatever, whatever your user's name is, uh, you are going to have access to the server uh, Monday through Friday between, I don't know, let's say between 8 and 10 a.m. to do your thing or whatever the time frame is. And outside of those hours, I want to turn it off or I want to make it really small. I'm going to make it a single core VM. So the system will automatically resize it on the schedule. That's one way to do it. Okay. So what if um, is and and I guess I, I want to make this as like seamless and idiot proof as possible. Uh, and and this is coming from a guy who has literally never done Azure auto scaling anything. So I'm sorry if the rest of you guys know the answers to these questions. Uh, <laughs> So let's let's say I've got an end user who maybe 60% of the time she is not doing anything crazy CPU intensive. She could get away with four or eight cores and you know 16, 32 gigs of RAM, whatever, right? I don't know what you actually need. Uh, when 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 you start looking at VMs and, and all that stuff, right? You know, because because you don't actually need the amount of resources that you're that you're selling people when you sell them some ridiculous computer. But I, I wonder, like, can I say, if you notice this application uh, start running at 100% CPU for more than X minutes, auto scale this thing up and give it, you know, 100 more CPUs. And no. then when, it, okay. It would, be, it would be nice. Okay, no, so. No, there so isn't that type of visibility. When you're scaling, is it having to shut down the server and then like reboot it? So th there's two types of scaling. There's scaling up and down and there is scaling in and out. Scaling up and down is resizing the VM from a bigger size to smaller size and vice versa. That is a disruptive operation that will take the VM down, change its size, bring it back up. And that's just the nature of Azure today. They don't support hibernation and they don't support, you know, where you can resize the VM while it's running. So, so scale up and down does require a reboot. Scale in and out, as opposed to scale up and down, is using the same VM size, but stamping out more versions of it. Scale in and out is very useful when you have desktops and you have lots of users that are coming in and leaving, coming in and leaving. The system, instead of changing the size of any particular VM, 
it can create new VMs. VMs. And it, it adds new VMs and then any new users come into those VMs. So, so we have this thing here called a desktop pool. And you can see this desktop pool has auto scaling turned off. This desktop pool is auto scaling turned on. So let's go into auto scaling so you can see how that works. You set the boundaries. So you tell it what is my minimum number of hosts that I want to have all the time. Let's say one is the minimum. And let's say my maximum is 25. I have a crazy oh big goodness. environment. <laughs> right? It's a big environment, four core VMs. I can have lots of them. But it's not going to build them unless they are needed. How does it know that they're needed? We're going to have a trigger. The trigger will say the CPU usage on the existing hosts on average exceeds 65% and stays there, let's say, for five minutes or longer. Then it will add or power on the next of these 25 and it's going to keep doing that until either the utilization settles below this threshold or until it reaches the maximum of 26, right? One or actually of 25, I should say. Uh, at that point, it cannot add anymore because that would violate this condition. So that's scale out. So users log in, CPU usage goes up on average, not for a particular user, and then more instances are coming online. Okay. When the users log off at the end of the day, you say if the utilization drops below 25% for 15 minutes or longer, and it happens after 6 p.m., right? So there's that 6 p.m. threshold when it can scale in. Only then it can start removing these VMs from the pool to basically get down to one running VM when everyone is off. Or most people are. Oh off. wow! So, so you can actually set it. So, if it's working hours, business hours, um, where we have, you know, butts in all the seats, we won't even allow it to scale in. That's right. Because imagine users go to lunch. People like leave leave their desk. Utilization goes down. You take away their their machines, and then they come back at one o'clock. They log in, and now it has to build it up again. Right. So that's not a good idea. It's bad for user experience. So during business hours, generally, you want to prevent it from scaling in. Or if you don't want to prevent it, you just uncheck this box, and then it will scale in at any time. Now, you said it's, it's, it's a poor user experience um, when, when everything gets shut off, and they go to lunch, and then they come back. Yep. So what is making it? Um, wh why is it a poor user experience? Sure. So, so imagine, and, and that's kind of what this option here is called pre-staging. Imagine the situation where, um, you know, you do need 25 of these VMs and it takes 15 minutes, 10 minutes to build up a VM as needed on demand. Oh, okay. Or it so, takes so it's not, it's not the case of, oh, we just need to like turn it back on. It's, they literally made an image and destroyed the VM. So now we have to recreate the VM kind of? It could be, uh, unless you're using what we call standby hosts. So in our case, we have zero standby hosts, which means when you create, when you scale in and out, you're actually adding and deleting VMs. If you say, I want five VMs to be on standby, then it's going to have one running, five available to be powered on, but off currently, and then up to 20 more that it can build. So it, it depends, it's all configurable. So you can say, I want to remove the VMs completely, or I want to keep them on standby to be turned on. Now, why would you want one versus the other, 
right? That's the question. And there's a trade-off. Standby Stand saves money, but you still pay for it a little bit. You pay for the storage. That's right. You pay for the operating system disk, uh, but they're quick to turn on. If you need to power yeah. them on, it's like a two-minute operation. The the what we call the burst capacity, the ones that are beyond the standby, they cost you nothing because they don't exist, not right. even storage, but they take about 15 minutes or so to build, maybe longer, 20 minutes. So these um when it's you know building and destroying VMs, I mean, so uh, how how am I even going to word this? So let's say I've got um, you know, the typical Microsoft Office or QuickBooks or whatever, but then maybe I've got 3ds Max installed. You know, that's that's one of those like one-off type applications. The activation of the license is goofy. Um, how how does that work when we're scaling in and out? Is it is it you actually would like use standby capacity? So because you have a machine tied activation, you will want to not destroy it. You'll want to keep it around, and you just want to power it off to save on compute, which is like eighty percent or eighty five percent of the cost. And then sure. you have a penalty of paying for that operating system disk, which is a little bit. Okay, so if the license is tied to a machine to the hardware which um, a lot of licensing is starting to, to really do that, especially Autodesk, um, then you, or, or even your RMM agent, you know, like the, that is a lot of times tied to the machine. Um, if, if you have something that's tied to a machine, it definitely needs to be standby. That way all it's really, all it feels like is happening is the machines being turned off and on. That's right. That's exactly what is happening, yep. Um, even though it's destroying the the physical computer, virtual computer, it's storing the disk, and it's just putting the disk back into an identical computer, which you can even do that with real computers, right? So that's right. Um, so that part isn't isn't a painful thing. Where it becomes painful is I don't even know where I was going with this. I'm sorry. So if they get so anyway, removed, then they have to be yeah. sometimes have to be reconfigured. Now, again, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole. We have something called scripted actions, which is our events or, or scripts you can attach, uh, not in this product, but in one of our you know uh, other products. You can attach an action to a scale out mm -hmm. or scale in event, and you can have it do whatever you want. So maybe if you, if you can script the installation and registration and licensing of a particular piece of software, then you can even destroy the VMs. And then when they're built, it will run a script to do whatever you need it to do. Very cool. All right, so um, basically what I'm hearing is the, the Azure thing could be an awesome use case for my end user who needs a boatload of CPUs in order to render these CPU-only uh, 3D renders. That's right. It, it gets really expensive if they don't know how to shut it down when they're not using it or whatever. Um, so that's obviously the, the scaling thing helps. But, you know, end users are never going to be like, oh, well, I'll just make all these things and then I'll, I'll kind of have them all ready so I can render them all tomorrow morning or today at the end of the day or whatever, right? Um, you know, they they want to they wanna like build it and render it and then 
build another one and render it. Like, you know, they're, I get it. You know, they want to render as soon as they can because they want to deliver the product because it was probably due yesterday. Uh, <laughs> so in that case, if if they were going, if we said, yes, I trust them to shut it down, would they need, would then they would need access to the admin portal here to- Which you can give them. You can give them limited access so they only sure. see their own stuff. Uh, and they, they can have the ability to power off the VM when they're done and then power on when they need it. That's the most granular control because then they know exactly when they need it, how long they need it for. You don't have the system fighting them. In the absence of that, you either need to respond to a schedule. You need to say, here is when the machine is available for you. And if you need something other than that, send the ticket. Uh, or you can do it based on CPU load but that really applies to multi-user scenarios, not single-user scenarios. And if I were to give them that super granular access, are they going to see all of those menu items on the left side? We no. can literally just give them like all they see is servers or whatever. And yeah. They so click so on that me... and they only see their one device. Yeah, there are different there are different roles in here. So let's uh, let's look at. Um, something here. And Derek says, for the level of cost involved with mistakes on that size of VM, you should only consider doing that with some automated orchestration. For sure, yeah. You should have something that shuts the VM down regardless, you know, at least once a day it shuts it down, even if they Absolutely. forgot. So at least you're limited to just a few hours. Uh, so there's a tier one support that gives them access uh, to users and under users, they can manage a dedicated desktop. So for instance, you can give them tier one support role and then with that role, they could resize their machine. Nice. Or they can turn it on or whatever. Now, um, have you, have you put any thought to making like a button? Like if, if I wanted a button that said, all right, scale up now. Scale down, like almost like a like an on-off switch, but not necessarily on-off. Just go from like big to small, so that way the the end user, if they're really dumb, uh, I want to make it so all they have to do is log in and and move the slider from on to off or big to little. That way they can. Uh... Yeah, could, could we? Yes, uh, it, it's not a common scenario, right? I mean, I think it's, it's okay. a cool edge scenario to talk about, and I think it it demonstrates the flexibility that you can accomplish with with a cloud platform like Azure. But you know, I, I, we we haven't heard of that request enough to say, okay, let's let's put it on above some other things that that we are building based on uh, on our partners' feedback. Come on, Vadim, it's just a little button. How hard could it be? <laughs> it, sure, it is just a button. And then it has got to go so, to QA, and then oh, you know so, how that works. So is the web about. design guy who's like, yeah, button, you know, just, just open bracket button. That's all you, that's all you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Um, all right. So this, this is really cool, man. Um, I see you've also got like network and backups and, and all kinds of other stuff that this is able to do. And honestly, like as much as I want to go through all of that, I feel like we're, we're almost out of time. So what I would like to do is um, one, I, I want to 
I want to invite all of you, like, if this is even a little bit interesting to you, you can go to gitnerdio.com. And in fact, let me uh, let me make a little banner for you for that. Uh, gitnerdio.com. Save show. Boom. There you go. So um, you can go to gitnerdio.com. Vadim said that you can check out the cost calculator and... All you have to do is give them an email address to get the results. Um, based on my experience with them, they're they're pretty laid back. They're they're not gonna connect wise you to death with with the sales calls. Okay, guys, um, I feel like I can say that because I do what I want. Uh, and, and then uh, you can sign up for an account, and then that gives you thirty days, right? 30, 30 days. Yeah, if you need longer, 30 days we, we of, can probably extend it for you, but yeah, 30 days is what you get. Now, even beyond the 30 days, do you just automatically get 10 internal use licenses? Uh, if you sign up to be a partner. So the trial is, you know, again, time-limited, fully functional thing. Uh, if you want to go through and become a partner, you know, you got to read the agreement and agree to it. Uh, there are no minimums, as I mentioned. Once you become a partner, then you become eligible uh, for internal licenses. I'll, I'll even go a step further. We have something called uh, GLE or Go Live Engineering within our company where we help uh, MSPs with their first and second deployments, kind of hands-on. We'll assign an engineer to help you, and that first or second deployment could be your IUL license. So if you you know want to get started, build it for you yourself internally, leverage the 10 free licenses, and you want one of our engineers to help you, then we can do that for you as well. Oh, that's great, man. And just out of my own sheer curiosity, so I, I saw you had like those set active, you know, 120 some odd users that set active. Like, are you actually paying for Azure for those or, or are those just some backend thing that you made it no, look the, like? Those are actual users. I think it's a demo environment that everybody in the company kind of uses and gives people accounts to try with. Um, now, they are only leveraged when people are logging in, right? So even though I have people that have desktops assigned to them, uh, those desktops, because of the magic of auto scaling, they will only be built on demand as users are logging in. And because this is a demo environment, people go in, they come out, it's, it's, very low concurrency. So the amount of infrastructure we have in this account is very little. So we're not, you know, this is not like 173 of users working eight hours a day or 10 hours a day, five days a week. This is 173 users where, you know, each one may log in once a month. Very cool. And um, I started to ask it and I really don't feel like I asked it well enough to get an answer. So when you are, um, I'm just going to keep calling it destroying the VMs, and then you bring it back. Um, even though it's it's not a what what is it standby instance? Mm -hmm. Is is it, it how how is it bringing it back with all your software? Oh, great question! It's doing it based on an on a, what we call a template or an image. So each host pool is going to have a base image, a golden image, a parent image, whatever term you want to use. So if I click on one of these host pools, you'll see there is a template section. This VM 
is what determines what is on your instance or your actual session host. So you will power this on, make changes to modify. Once you're done, you click the power off button to power it off. And then you would update your existing hosts to the latest version of your template. So my template here is July 4th. I guess it hasn't been updated in a while. You can see <laughs> this is the, the latest update of the template uh, is also being used by the session host. So, so that's, a, that's how you would make changes to what's installed on it. Everything user-related is not on this VM. Remember, that's using FSLogix. Right. That's on the file server. And when, when looking at that uh, VM template, so the, the, the one we are talking about here, um, do, you, do we have to deal with like Windows updates and that kind of stuff too? Or yeah. OK, so it, so it is a, a regular Windows server. We have to, so we have to do the Windows updates and update the template in order for people to be using an, an up-to-date uh, security hazard free version of Windows. Yeah, because that exists. Um, so, so that is something to keep in mind. Like, it is, it is basically anytime it spins those up, it's doing it based on an image, which is super cool because it, it reminds me of that. Uh, oh, it, that that software that you could install in like libraries and schools, um, where where it where it makes the the computer anytime they reboot the computer, it just loads up the image. Well, like deep deep freeze or something. Deep freeze. I'm I'm sitting here like, wait, what's it called? Like dry ice or like. <laughs> <laughs> so so it reminds me of deep freeze because like, in a sense, it's it's like a non-destructive. Like you just reboot or, or turn it off and turn it back on, and you're just back to where you were. Um, but are with all people your users able... saved? Yes. That's so. So when when the users like let's say a user logs in and they for some god awful reason have admin access and they install Adobe Acrobat DC, uh, so you know the, they install the Adobe suite and then they power down or, or whatever and then they log back in a week later and now it's now it's pulling back up the image right. So it doesn't have it's Adobe gone. installed anymore. It's that's gone. Right. It's gone. Now, but it might still have the shortcuts on the desktop for it because that's the user's thing, not the computer's thing. Exactly. Yep. Oh, that's exactly. funny. Well, man, Vadim, I I love learning about cool stuff like this, man. I really appreciate you hopping on here today. Anytime. Anytime you want to come back on, you know, if you want to show us some more cool stuff or um talk about some like awesome use cases, like, you know, the, the biggest use case you've ever had or anything like that with your MSP partners. Like, I would love to hear more about that stuff. But I think um, today it was really great for us to, especially it's been years, man. It, it was great for us to get a recap of what the heck does Nerdio do and why should we be using it? And, and I hope that you guys enjoyed that today too, so. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I'd love to be back at some point in the future. And hopefully uh, the audience found this useful. If you have any questions, uh, get nerdio.com, as was stated earlier. And uh, I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, don't forget to subscribe so you can get updates whenever we go live. And, and anytime videos go out, uh, check out rocketmsp.io to learn more about uh, everything that I'm doing. And check out getnerdio.com 
to learn more about what Vadim and his team are doing. Thanks so much, and we will see you all, well, I will see you all uh, tomorrow. Take care, everybody. Have you been looking for a way to stay focused on your goals and grow your MSP? Accountability groups from Rocket MSP can help. We offer weekly accountability sessions that meet online with a group of your peers. Your success begins with accountability. Go to www.rocketmsp.io to join your accountability group today.